I mean, when you've had a good day fishing and you're driving to the tender and the sun's setting or rising or whatever, it's just like, holy crap, this is just the most beautiful, amazing job. This is Fishtails, a seafood podcast. I'm John Sussman. Wild salmon is a truly unique and special fish. Regarded by chefs, environmentalists, gourmands and nutritionists alike as the best salmon to be found, it accounts for only 20% of the salmon consumed, the remainder being farmed. Each May to September, the wild salmon run on the west coast of North America sees the fish migrate from the open ocean back up the rivers to the lakes of their birth to lay their eggs, completing the natural life cycle unique to wild salmon. The rivers throb and chum with vast group of fish swimming upstream to spawn. Bristol Bay is the easternmost arm of the Bering Sea and hosts the world's largest commercial sockeye salmon fishery. Because of the bay's remote environment away from industrial development and its healthy, largely untouched watershed, Bristol Bay is a vital refuge for both oceanic and freshwater fish species, particularly the imperial sockeye salmon. This year, Bristol Bay's sockeye run is the biggest on record, with a staggering 70 million fish returning to spawn. The commercial fishing fleet is some 1,400 boats strong, comprising some of the most passionate fishers in North America. Reba Temple comes from a family of fishermen. She is the captain of the FV Cloud 9 and is going on her 14th year of fishing in Bristol Bay. My name is Reba Temple and I'm currently in Homer, Alaska, which is where I was born and raised. Um, but I live in Petersburg, Alaska now uh, with my partner and my children. And then I fish out of Bristol Bay, Alaska, usually, except when I'm home with the kiddos the last couple summers. Bristol Bay is in western Alaska, um, and it's there's four kind of primary rivers that are districts people fish out of. There's Ugashik, um, Igigik, and then the Naknekwidak, and then the Nushigak, um, and Togiak's also included, but that's a little different. But so I fish, I keep my boat in Naknek, Alaska. Um, and so every summer I fly out there and kind of work on the boat and get it ready to go. And then we launch and then kind of just choose which river to go fish out of based on kind of preseason forecasts and uh, where fisheries biologists think that the run might be going. Where the rivers go, it's really like tundra around like Naknek. And so there's not many trees and it's a lot of berries in the fall, a lot of blueberries and salmon berries. Um, there's lots of bear around and um, and then the rivers eventually get up into kind of different terrain. But yeah, where we're actually fishing, you kind of look out, it's kind of surreal because it's just pretty flat, flat everywhere. Um, but, um, but yeah, that sounds like it would be boring, but it's just super beautiful. Being born into a fishing family can mean a predetermined career, regardless of sex. For many families, the extra hands during the fishing season, no matter what the age, are just part of family life. A bereavement in a fishing family can often result in another family member stepping up to take control. Uh, my parent, my dad grew up fishing. He's from Alaska. And um, so he kind of grew up doing salmon fishing and halibut and herring. Um, and then my mom would fish with him. So in the summertime, my sister and I would live with my grandparents while they would fish. And then... 
I think probably around when I was 14, they decided that we were old enough to come out fishing with them, which we were really excited to do that. So my sister and I started at like 13 and 14 and fished and we'd fish with a as a family on my dad's boat. So it was usually my brother, my sister and I, and then my parents. It's always just uh, pretty hectic because it's just like a crazy time. There's so many fish coming back and you have such a short time period to catch as many as you can. And uh, I, it was just pretty funny because it was, I, we were, my sister and I were like 13 and 14. So just not really knowing what we're doing. And most other people have like, you know, 20 year old men just out there. And so it was my 50 year old mom and then us, but I just remember my dad just be like, you gotta, you gotta just go. You gotta get the fish out of that. So we were just trying as our hardest. And then that night, I just remember I woke up and I like couldn't move my hands. <laughs> I was, mom like I can't move my hands and she's like oh it'll be just kind of do what you can it'll be better by morning it was just like kind of my first look into actual like work and it was kind of wild but pretty fun and then um in 2013 my dad passed away so I started running the boat we made it through everyone was safe but it was pretty horrifying because I kind of was going into the season thinking he would uh be alive through the summer so I could call in. He passed away right before the season. So it definitely was a lot of growing pains. Um, the first opener, I thankfully had my sister and my sister-in-law on board for the whole season and my brother came out for part of it. So I had lots of amazing help. But but yeah, I think the first opener, I went out and put my net out and caught some fish. So I was thinking I was like, oh, this isn't so hard. And then as I was reeling the net onto the boat, the propeller got caught in the net. And so it got so caught that I, the whole engine stopped and wouldn't start again. So then I was floating in the middle of the district with just everything all caught. But um, thankfully you have radio groups. A lot of people have radio groups. So everyone has a special radio that can communicate without other people listening. And so my radio group members towed me, but it took me like three days to get back in action. And it was just the whole season was extremely humbling, but, uh, but made it. And every season's been more fun since then. So <laughs> it's moved in the right direction. I've, yeah, I've been running it ever since until last summer when I had the twins. The long, dark winters of Alaska all become worth it once the summer salmon season finally reaches the last frontier at the beginning of summer in May. For many of the commercial fishers, like the salmon, they migrate from warmer climes and the preparations commence from maintenance to fishing area selection before the job is on. Um, in the winter time, so it's kind of, I've only really been out to Bristol Bay once in the winter, um, but it can get super cold, super windy because it's just flat, uh, not really too much to get in the way of the wind. So um, it can be snowy, but also just like bitter cold where it's not necessarily so much snow and the rivers all ice up and um, it's it's a pretty pretty hard place. I think not too many people live there all winter. There are people though for sure who do. Um, but then in the summer, usually we get out there in like May or June and it's starting to get, it can still snow definitely until like April um, and be pretty cold. But by the time you get there in May, it's starting to get warmer and it's gotten, it definitely has gotten warmer. Like it can be up in like the seventies and eighties during the summertime. Um, most people start to fly out to 
get their boats ready somewhere like the first week of June. So kind of from like anywhere from the beginning of June until about June 15th, roughly, you're kind of out there living on your boat, but in a boatyard. So all the boats are on land and you're just doing all the preseason maintenance you do every year and hoping you don't find any big problems in your engine or something. And then um, you get launched into the water. So a big truck with a trailer come and put you in the water. And then somewhere between June 15th and I don't know, June 20th, um, you kind of pick which district you're going to go fish in. And so basically I'm sitting there chewing my fingernails, stressing out. Cause if you choose the wrong district, it takes, you can't just automatically go from one river to another. You have to wait two days of no fishing before you can go. So it's kind of a big deal where you choose to fish. Whoever you're delivering your fish to your cannery, you, um, you call them and you say, okay, I'm going I'm to fish in the Igigik district today. And so then they relay that to fish and game and you have, um, your card and you, it's like a whatever it's not an actual physical card but that's what you call it. you're dropping your card and you so they call fish and game who manages all the fisheries um and all the rivers and tell them which district you're going to go to and so if you say you fish in iggy gick you're fishing and then you hear there's a lot of fish in Naknik, um you have to call your canner again and say hey i want to transfer from iggy gick to Naknik." And then they call fishing game and let you know, but you have to wait for 48 hours where you can't fish at all just to make it. So all the boats don't just move all over the place all the time. Um, so it's, and so kind of a weird, but yeah, but so it's just to make it, the boats are getting faster and faster out there and the districts are close enough that if you had a really fast boat, you could just be buzzing all over the place, which makes it hard for the, the um, people managing the salmon runs to know how many boats are fishing at what river. Salmon is the most valuable commercial fishery managed by the state of Alaska. Salmon are harvested using a variety of fishing gear and more Alaskans are employed in harvesting and processing salmon than in any other commercial fishery. It's also one of the most highly managed and regulated wild fisheries in the world with strict controls on where, when and how fish are caught. Yes, they manage it um, based on the tides. So um, when the fish are going, generally the fish kind of, uh, pushed then start swimming towards the river on the flood of the tide. And then it's usually kind of a little less fishy, the general rule, there's always exceptions on the ebb of the tide. So the, uh, fisheries managers are watching that. And so they'll, sometimes they'll give you a four hour opener or an eight hour opener. Or sometimes if there's so many fish, they just say you're open until August, just all sorts of things. So you listen on the radio um, at different times of the day and then listen for what the uh, fishing game announcements are. And then they tell you like, okay, we're going to open up at 9am and then we're going to close at 3pm. And so, yeah, then you're just out there and it can get really wild on the shotgun openers because you're just, everyone has their boats and there's fish jumping all over sometimes. So everyone wants to set their nets and it just gets pretty wild because there could like this year, I, I, there was over like 700 boats in the Nushagak district. Um, and so there's just so many boats around and yeah, it can get wild. All wild salmon taste their best when caught just before their journey ends at the spawning grounds, since they prepare for the trip by fattening up on ocean crustaceans. 
Sockeye salmon is rich in texture and high in flavour. Many chefs claim that the sockeye is the most luxurious in both flavour and texture, primarily because the sockeye salmon eats more plankton and crustaceans than any other species, contributing to its darker colour and rich flavour. We're fishing for red salmon, so sockeye salmon, um, and that's pretty much primarily what you're fishing for. And um, it's pretty amazing how little bycatch there is uh, when you're fishing. Like, you can definitely catch certain rivers also have, like, the Nushigak has king salmon, so um, you can catch king salmon, and that's definitely not what you're targeting. And So that's kind of something that the... Um, fishing game watches for to make sure that they're getting enough king salmon up the river and uh at the end of the season you'll get some chum or dog salmon at the end but really it's just pretty amazing like you'll just put out the net and most of the time it's just pure red red, or sockeye salmon the principal means of catching salmon in bristol bay is the drift net this method uses a gill net, which is not fixed or anchored, but is carried downriver by the flow of the stream from the side of a boat. Fish swimming upriver are entangled in the mesh, usually by the head and gills. This method maximizes both the quality of the fish and the efficiency of the harvest. So the net's on a, a reel on the back deck of the boat, and so you just let the net reel out and um, you have 150 fathoms per permit. So some people have two permits on one boat, so they get extra net. They'll have 200 fathoms. Um, but yeah, you put the net out and primarily you can kind of pick your size. So the fish have been getting a little smaller. So I think when I first started, people were using like five and a 16th inch um, mesh, but now it's down to, I think I hung a bunch of four and three quarter this year um and some people do even smaller than that but but yeah so you can kind of pick pick what size you want and then you can either have somebody else make your net or you can make it yourself or however that works but yeah you so you put your mesh onto the cork line then you have a lead line holding it down so the net stays kind of open um and then yeah you just set it out and it's yeah sometimes you pick it after five minutes sometimes you pick it after an hour or anywhere in between but sometimes um you can kind of see the net working so if fish are still sometimes there's just no fish so you just roll it up fast because you realize that was kind of a stupid spot to put your net but if there's fish going into your net you can kind of see that the net the corks line on the top that's floating on the water kind of splashes and you can see that there's fish going into it and sometimes if it's really a fishy area, there'll be almost like so many fish in the net that more can't go in there. So then you reel it up and try to clear some out so you can either put it back or move to another spot. Um, so, yeah, you just uh, get that, get the net hooked back up to the reel that's on your boat. And um, you, you use hydraulics to reel it on. So there's usually somebody working that valve to kind of bring it back on board um and then you have your people between the back of the boat and the reel you usually have two to four people on um either side of the net just picking fish out so as it comes on board you pick it with your hands some people use fish picks but the fish swim into the net and then where their gills are the net catches them there thus the name gill netting um and so you kind of have to pop them out 
get the gills out, but sometimes they just get so wrapped up in there and wiggle around. And so then you use like a little blade to cut them to make it a little faster because you really do want to get the fish out as fast as possible. Yeah, you can have like a, a, a water haul, which means you put your net out and bring it in and there's nothing in there, which is always demoralizing. But hopefully you don't have that happen. But yeah, you can just have like 10 fish in your net or you can have like 2,000 fish in your net on like an insanely, yeah, which is like, I mean, people have had 3,000, like you can get so many in there. Um, and if you get enough fish, you'll have your net sink, which means all the corks or a portion of the corks have gone underwater, which is awesome because it means you have a really good set, but also kind of scary because you don't know where your net is because it's just gone down into the water. Then you head to the tender. So those are the big, big boats where they take your fish off. So best, like if you've seen Deadliest Catch ever, those boats that fish crab in the wintertime, tender in the summertime. And so you pull up alongside and tie up to them and then they have a big crane that attaches to those bags and just pulls them off and dumps them into their big tanks and their boat. And then they take as many uh, little boats as they can. And then once they're full, they run into the canneries and drop off the fish at the processing plant. For many years, the wild sockeye salmon of Bristol Bay was world famous as a premium canned salmon. Over recent years, it's become recognised more as a premium table fish, sold globally in both food service and retail for cooking. Different processors have different, sometimes, um, like, they're kind of gotten away from canning, but a lot of them, they, they have their processing plants right on the shore, so they just either will, like, freeze them whole to be reprocessed later. Um, there's some that have fillet lines, but... It's, it's all pretty different on that end. So I delivered to Trident, so like you see some of that fish ending up um, like in maybe Costco, but I think some of it does get canned, but they don't can it as much. They're kind of a bit getting away from canning lines. So a lot of it is gonna be like the stuff that might be like frozen in Costco or something, frozen fillets. I mean, the sockeye, I, especially the last couple of years, it's been pretty, super strong Bristol Bay, not so strong in other parts of the state. So then when you see like wild Alaskan sockeye, you kind of know it's kind of cool. Like in Costco being like, that probably came from like where we were fishing. Like can't be a hundred percent sure, but that's a really high likelihood of that. Wild seafood is one of Alaska's most precious resources with the state going to great lengths to ensure its continued abundance. From fishermen and processors to scientists and fisheries managers, sustainability is not only crucial to Alaskans' livelihoods, but a deeply ingrained tradition. The size of the salmon run this year is testimony to the success of the conservative approach by the fisheries managers to ensure the sustainability of the salmon fishery. To me, I mean, they're just like, it's such a, it's just like the last the last wild salmon run really it seems like in the world that just like i mean this year the forecast was for 70 million fish to return and there there's no they're just returning to pristine water there's not a lot of people messing it up. i mean it's just like so cool to when you're on the boat and you're just watching so many fish just jumping like the water almost looked like it's frothing there's so many fish coming back um, and it just is a super well-regulated run, so the 
fisheries biologists are just all doing a really good job of making sure that the, the fish come first. And that's, that's what it just seems like to me. The fish are coming first, and so you feel really good about being part of the fishery because, you know, you're not going to get a fish. If there's not enough fish going up the river, they'll just shut you down and you'll never fish for the whole season. So, yeah, it's just cool to see see it all work and, and the fish keep coming back. On our boat, we throw the first fish back, just let let it go. But the second fish, you just there's nothing better than getting that second fish and pretty much regardless we'll never sell it we'll always eat it because it's just so delicious and have it with some rice and it's just the most beautiful red meat and yeah it's it's been pretty cool having kids because I feel like you know you're I'm always kind of worried like oh am I giving them good enough food but they could eat sockeye salmon three times a day and I'd feel like so good about myself because that's just the best protein ever so the forecast and the fish have been we just sat I think it was the single largest day of harvest um in the history of bristol Bay since they've been keeping so this the forecast that they did for this year the 70 million fish forecast is the largest forecast they've ever made since they've been making forecasts for the bay so really it's like since they've been keeping track this is the biggest runs i've ever seen in the last few years so pretty cool Alaska has a proud tradition of having a strong number of women working in their commercial fisheries. Women own more than 30% of the commercial fishing permits there. In Alaska, women are a growing force in the fishing industry, being especially proactive in promoting conservation and sustainability. It's getting to be more and more. Like when I, like definitely when my mom first started fishing out there, I think there was not hardly any. And then, um, when I first started going out there, it was kind of, you knew, you could definitely, you knew the girl boats. So I'd always like wave at the boats. I knew there were other girls on, but now it's, it's pretty cool. There's a lot, there's quite a few more female captains out there and there's a lot of female, um, quite a few people out. There's definitely not as many as the males, but, um, it's not, it's not so crazy to see another girl out there, which is pretty awesome. I don't know. It's just been such a fun way to grow up and spend so much time with your family on a small in a small space, which sounds maybe not desirable, but it has just been so cool to do that growing up. And now I'm just really excited to get to do that with my own kids and go out to a pretty remote part of Alaska and just see, it's just so beautiful. And that's so cool to be out there catching fish with your friends and family. And it's, yeah, it's just really, the, it's, yeah, it feels like like a barely I mean when you've had a good day fishing and you're driving to the tender and the sun's setting or rising or whatever and it's just like holy crap this is just the most beautiful amazing job that you would do I mean I would do it for free I don't know it's just so cool it's so exciting to not know it every day yeah what's gonna like you wake up and then it's pretty fun to just start the boat up and get a cup of coffee and get out on the top of the boat and I drive from up top so you can really see well and just kind of see how many fish you see for the day which is pretty fun pretty exciting over the past 130 years Bristol Bay has become the home of the largest commercial wild salmon fishery in the world as the world also becomes aware of how special wild salmon is, so too this incredible fishery becomes more important. Reba Temple is rightly proud and protective of her beloved sockeye salmon and the fishery she lives and breathes. 
Her commitment and aspirations for the future of the fishery are a true inspiration. This is Fishtales, a seafood podcast. A Deep in the Weeds production, I'm John Sussman. Follow us on Instagram at Fishtales Seafood Podcast or email us at fishtalespodcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay tuned for more tales from beneath the surface of the seafood world every Friday on your podcast app.